Hello and good evening. This is the Everyman Podcast. I am Jay. I'm Dom. And today we're going to discuss a subject that's near and dear to both of our hearts, discipline. (laughs) We're also going to do a breakdown of the movie The Last Samurai. It's one of my favorite movies. Dom, I think it's one of your favorite movies too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of those movies that it didn't get a lot of popularity. It got, I think it got a decent amount of acclaim through the award groups uh oscars and golden globes and whatnot but it didn't it didn't really reach the zeitgeist at the time because i think it came out like 2003 yeah definitely deserved to reach the heights uh for me that was one of the best tom cruise movies and tom cruise has got a lot of you know excellent films so that was definitely one of my favorites but i've i've always been um i've always been interested in uh, feudal japan samurai culture and I find everything about them fascinating. Do you know a lot about samurai? No, I mean... No. Just whatever I told you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah <laughs> basically. Yeah. So, yeah, I have, I have a couple of really good books um, that I would recommend to you and anyone else. Uh, Hagakur, is, it's, it's cool. It's a collection of uh, thoughts mm-hmm. from, um, from various samurai. And it was made famous. This is how I learned about it. It was made famous in a movie called Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai. Yeah, which was it was a pretty cool indie flick. You know, it's about a guy who um, he he works as a hitman for a local mobster. Yeah, because this mobster saved his life many many years ago. We don't know exactly what happens to this guy. The guy's played by Forrest Whitaker, by the way, and okay. uh, he becomes this incredibly skilled hitman. Right, and he feels indebted to this mobster. Yeah. Because uh, because the mobster saved his life, and he follows the code of the samurai that he's reflecting on throughout the film. He reads excerpts from the uh, book Hagakur. So I'm like, wow, what a cool book! So I went out and bought one, a, a copy, I mean, and I still own it. I still read it from time to time. I'll just read a passage here and there. Yeah. And it, it really gives you a good idea of what the samurai were all about. Uh, I've read others. The Book of Five Rings, Miyamoto Musashi comes to mind. Excellent read. You know, it's it's timeless wisdom, really. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Why do you think that's the case with like a, specifically with like a warrior culture with the samurai? Well, you know, so as as I was telling you earlier, in my opinion – in many people's opinion, I would wager, the two greatest warrior cultures of all time were the uh, the Greek Spartans and the Japanese samurai. The samurai, though, they weren't exclusively warriors. You know, they were uh, they were pretty much Renaissance men. Right. They were expected to be good at a multitude of things, as well as they were. You know, another thing they were expected to do was carry themselves well in civilized society. Right. Um. So your question was, why is it timeless wisdom? Yeah. Like, what, what, what makes you think that of that culture? Okay, so they were a deeply introspective people. You know, they, um, they were the embodiment of what you might call the Zen Stoic philosophy, where they look within and they hold themselves maximum, like, they hold themselves accountable to a maximum degree. Mm-hmm. So what's the culture like now? It's victim mentality is what's prevalent, it's right? It's the opposite. It's the opposite. You're always looking, you know, you're a victim of this. You were mistreated. That's not your fault. This is not your fault. They were the opposite of that. Right. 
Okay, so if you read um, any book that will give you a breakdown on Stoicism, I read one recently that was excellent. Uh, let me see if I can remember what it was By Ryan called. Holiday? Ryan Holiday, yes. It was called The Daily Stoic. Yeah. Which, again, it was a collection of um, thoughts right. from a multitude of different Stoics. So <clears throat> their wisdom is so profound if you read it, because these are people that they made no excuses for themselves. They sought to perfect everything they did. They were extremely focused and they were extremely disciplined, which is what we're going to discuss today. And through this way of living, you develop character and with character comes wisdom. Mm. So they had wisdom that was so unbelievably profound that if you read it now, it will resonate with you so far removed from the era in which these thoughts were initially recorded. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, excellent read. So that is why the film The Last Samurai resonated with me personally. How about you? Yeah. Um, I mean, if you take the discipline notion off the table, I think it's it's jarring to see a film. Obviously, it's portraying, I, I think, I want to say it's set in the late 1800s. I don't know if that's correct. Mm, yeah, does it sound about so. right? Yeah, uh, so eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, Japan. Um, but I mean, if you grew up in Western culture, you would have never, if you hadn't not visited the place itself, you would never have been able to kind of like transport yourself to whatever that would have been at that point in time in history. So it's 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 pretty distinctive in the way that the film was kind of set up uh, in terms of how you or how people can witness a samurai culture. So I, I think it's, it was a, a pretty cool take on, on a culture that was lost or is lost and forgotten because obviously it does. And to my knowledge, I don't think any samurai exists now. No, not J- in practice. Japan has integrated a lot of that samurai mentality into their, into their industries. And you could see it. You can see it, Definitely into their mentality and it's not completely lost on them but I think the West is desperately in need of that philosophy Um, they need to consider it and yeah I'm just going to go ahead and say it that masculinity that these men possessed that um, that balance of discipline um Bravery, a sense of duty, responsibility, humility, integrity, accountability. That's yeah. all of that. It's we need that now more than ever. Yeah, because the world is. And I don't know if, if our listeners are paying attention, but it's pretty much off the rails these days. Yeah. So yeah, that's why it resonated with me. Uh, we will be discussing the movie in depth, so there there will be spoilers. If you haven't seen the movie, turn this off. Go watch the movie, then come back. Yeah, you've been warned. Yeah. So, in the movie, we have Tom Cruise's character, right? Okay, and Nathan Algren, I think. Nathan Algren. Yeah. He is a soldier, right? Who is retired and he's working for the Winchester Company. Mm-hmm. And he is essentially doing live promotions for them, mm-hmm. showing off his uh, shooting skills or whatever. But it doesn't take you long to see that something is very, very wrong with Nathan. Yeah, he's afflicted with some level of emotional, like he's distraught. 
He's extremely distraught. You can tell that he's been drinking. Yep. He's disheveled. Yep. And he looks absolutely worn out, frustrated, burnt out, and like he's lost all hope in life, which is something a lot of people can resonate to. You know, mental health is a big, big problem. Nowadays, people feel hopeless. They feel desperate. And um, that's pretty much the sense we're getting here. Yeah. So his boss at the Winchester Company is upset because Tom Cruise is drunk again. Yeah. And he says, finish this performance and you're done. So Tom Cruise uh, goes, uh, sorry, Nathan Algren goes out with a bang. He does his last performance. He starts showing off some pretty impressive shooting skills. And then he calls it a day. When he gets outside, he's greeted by a friend of his, whose name I can't remember. It doesn't matter, though. And he says, listen, I have an opportunity for you. Mm-hmm. The Japanese people are looking to become a part of the civilized world. I think it was the Bagley, his former uh, mm-hmm. boss. Sorry to interrupt. Right. So it said, there's a well-paying job for you. You will have to train their army. Or lack thereof. <laughs> or, well, yeah. So they, they will, you will have to train their armed forces to deal with this outlaw threat, this remnant to their past that refuses to adapt with the times. This should be hitting you very hard right about now because we as a society have come to love um, all things modern and contemporary and, you know, young kids now, they're taught to kind of discard traditionalism. Yeah. So this movie is extremely impactful for a multitude of reasons. Anyways, when Nathan hears about the pay, he's very nihilistic at this point. And yeah. he, he essentially just says, okay, whatever. For that price, I can't remember what the what the sum was. This is, but for that price, sure, why not? Yeah, like I think the equivalent in like you taking in today's dollars was like they were going to pay him like fifteen, twenty thousand a month. Like it was like hundreds of dollars back then, but it would have been very valuable now. Mm-hmm. So he comes into contact with uh, an old superior of his from his military days. You get the sense, again, I'm not remembering their names, but their names don't really matter. It's yeah. not germane to the story. Yeah. Um, this superior officer that um, Tom Cruise comes into contact with, he's also involved in this project to train the Japanese forces. Yeah. And you could tell immediately that Tom Cruise has a bitter hatred for this man. Yeah. Yeah. And Tom Cruise says something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing here. He says, I would kill anyone you want for the amount of money you're paying me. To which he steps in and says, no, no, we're not asking you to kill. Just train. He goes, that's fine. Just know that I would gladly kill you for free. Yeah. So it's made abundantly clear that Tom Cruise, for whatever reason, which the reasons are, are unknown at this point, he hates this man. And this guy, uh, just for a little bit of context that may, when you watch the film, it kind of portrays this over the rest of the film. He's kind of the classic, uh, I guess what you would say now is he represents some sort of, some form of traditionalism, but there's something about him that's gone wrong or that's corrupted. So he is in the same sort of system, if you want to call it that, in this case is the army, 
but the the approach to i guess whether it's his life or to the army itself there's a level of corruption that this superior has accepted and is willing to forego any morality or ethics or discipline or anything that would be considered virtuous in their approach to their job he kind of puts that to the side and he doesn't really care which again is a lot of parallels to kind of culture and the way th- things are done now like it's kind of this some things may so be what's disguised good, what's that's a good point and what's what's also important to note is that this guy's quite content with abandoning his morals yes whereas to, tom cruise seems very conflicted about things that he's done in the past right so that to me demonstrates that tom cruise's character no matter how down and out and nihilistic he is at his core he still held on to some semblance of values right which is why he was so tortured with some of the decisions he he had made. Uh, by contrast, his superior officer, the one he can't stand, he seemed very much at peace with what he was. He seemed quite content with accepting this money and carrying on. Even more, obviously, he's even enjoying it. Mm. Like there's some sort of lust for it. So that's the difference between these two characters. So Tom Cruise arrives in Japan. And even though he is a drunk, essentially, he's an alcoholic, and he seems like a washout who's given up on life, he takes his responsibility very seriously. So he does have strong character as a human being, as a person, as a military man, as a man in general. He has a strong character. Right. Um, They've assigned him an English, what was that guy, a journalist? Yeah, he was kind of like an author, He's journalist an author. type of guy, yeah. Okay. They had assigned to him an English uh, biographer, we'll call him, who's chronicling these events. And he asks of Tom Cruise's, uh, Nathan Algren, excuse me, I keep doing that. He asks about his time in the war. And he said, I'm told you've had many battles against the Native American Indian. Yeah, and this guy here, he seems like a good-hearted guy, very jovial, very enthusiastic. Uh, he asks Tom Cruise a question about scalping. He says, I'm told that the Native American Indian have this technique that they perform on their enemies called scalping, where they, you know, literally remove the scalp of a living enemy. And he says to Tom, to Nathan Algren, he says, um, can you... Give me more detail about it. In which case, in which at which time, Nathan Algren's demeanor changes, and you see a rage wash over him. And he said, "Imagine again." I'm paraphrasing. He says, "Imagine someone who hates you with the utmost intensity. They grab a handful of your hair, and he actually grabs the man's hair. Yeah, I remember and it now. Yeah, they start to saw with a dull blade across your scalp." to the point where they can get it off with one hard tug. He says, then you'll have some idea what it is. So it's clear. Um, Nathan Algren, he's not looking for glory. He's not looking for people to recognize his military efforts. or He hates everything he did, and that's clear at yeah. this point. He, he's not proud of his military service. Yeah, and he's, he can't be inauthentic about it either. But in keeping with the fact that deep down inside, underneath this all, he still has maintained his level of integrity – he takes his work very seriously. So when he arrives in Japan, he is mortified to see the 
quite frankly, pathetic state that the Japanese army is in. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have no skills, no discipline. Uh, Many of them seem terrified just at the idea of combat. And he tells his superior officer that the time frame they had given him to whip them into shape is simply not sufficient. Yeah, and I think that part of that uh, request was also they wanted to have some experiences with, at the time, would have been relatively new forms of um, weaponry, uh, firearms. Yeah, rifles, firearms, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and they had very very limited to no experience whatsoever. So he, Nathan Algren says to his superior officer, this is not enough time. And the superior officer says quite nonchalantly, not our problem. We're paid to train them this amount of time. This is what we're going to do, and that's that. Yeah, he's a mercenary. I just came to my like he's kind of he's absolutely a mercenary. He has no qualms about anything. Yeah, integrity doesn't even factor in. Yeah. So Nathan Algren said something to the effect of, "That's pretty much what I would expect of you." But, um, you know, I've, I've taken this job on and I intend to do it well. I cannot in good conscience send these men into battle. Right. In the condition they're in. And then there was a very dramatic scene where he illustrates his point by having one of the Japanese soldiers. Try to shoot him. Try to shoot him. Yeah. At, at a distance that, that seemed impossible to miss. But yet the guy did miss. Yeah. All over of his shots. Over, yeah. Even though Nathan Algren was shooting back at him at yeah. his feet. And yeah. he was like, Fire. Fire! The man panicked and he completely missed. Yeah. And Nathan Algren, played by the great Tom Cruise, said, They're not ready. He walked yeah. off, which had no effect. Um, nevertheless, these Japanese soldiers had to prepare for a campaign against a group of bandits known as the samurai. Right. People that just refused to get on board with the modern world and in the direction that. The Japanese government was looking to move it. Yeah, maybe before you continue, we can also give a little bit of context to the Japanese style of government where they had an emperor at the time um, who had a reasonable appreciation for tradition and samurai values, but was kind of overtaken by... He was being bullied. Yeah, bullied by industrialist businessmen and I suppose you could say politicians within the scope of whatever those politicians may have existed at that point in time, but whatever, however they existed, that that's essentially what happened. And, and it was more so the effort to recruit Tom Cruise's character, Nathan Algren, was primarily led by one of the main industrialist uh, business guys in Japan. So there was a little bit of, I suppose you could say, infighting in respect to their approach. So I wouldn't want, like when you say bandits, yeah, they, the industrialists basically treated that this is a threat that can to the modernization of Japan. right well or to their power and money really the, the emperor's predicament was this he was torn between a decision do i keep the soul of my country yeah and everything that made japan special or do i do what my advisors are pressuring me to do and that's to become a more modern country right so again that's something that should deeply resonate with many people as their morals are being challenged on a daily basis nowadays. So Tom Cruise has assumed personal responsibility for these men. And he takes them to engage a group of bandits known as the samurai. 
He is told by his superior officer, I believe, that this should be a cakewalk. These are savages with primitive weapons. They don't know how to operate firearms, which is not even historically accurate, but whatever. It's not, it's not the point. And they, even with their limited training, should be able to overwhelm this group of bandits yep. based on their superior firepower. Yep. The superior officer is shocked to learn that Tom Cruise's character, Nathan Algren, he intends to lead these men into battle himself personally. Yep. And he says, we're not here to fight. And Nathan Algren said, that might be okay for you. But no, I'm not going to let these men who aren't even ready to fight yep. fight without proper leadership. Yeah. So again, we have a testament to the type of character this man has. Now, I suppose you can argue that he was, in a sense, suicidal. Yep. But I don't see it that way. He, he, he seemed very much interested in doing his job as well as he could. Yeah, the right way. The right way. Or what he deemed to be the right way. All right. So they're waiting in this heavily forested area to engage these quote-unquote savages, as they're referred to. Yeah. And they hear the battle cries. That sounds like hell has been unleashed. And... Nathan Algren looks up and he can't believe his eyes. He sees these men fearlessly trekking towards him on horseback. Armored up. costumes, in this armor that look like costumes that make them look like devils escaped from hell. Yeah. And they overwhelm these Japanese soldiers. Almost like an ambush. It wasn't, no, I wouldn't call it an ambush. It wasn't, but it was was almost like, it it was almost like they ambushed they destroyed these Japanese soldiers. In spite of the fact that they had better weaponry, the indomitable spirit that these warriors possessed just absolutely overwhelmed them to the point where many of them retreated. Yeah, and their fighting style, very close quarters, even though they had some further distance, like I guess you would say ancient weaponry, it's really just bow and arrows, but they, they were accustomed to the way that they were fighting in that battle. Tom Cruise, Nathan Algren, the warrior that he is, he sees that defeat is imminent, but he has chosen to go down swinging. And he is now surrounded. He has been abandoned. The Japanese men that he was fighting alongside have dispersed and ran. He is going down swinging. One samurai said, everyone back off, he is mine. So they engage in a brief tussle to which the samurai is basically swatting Nathan Algren around, who's already been knocked off his horse and roughed up. In a last-ditch effort, uh, Nathan Algren plays possum and waits for the samurai to get close enough, and he strikes, he delivers a death blow by sticking a a spear right through his neck. At this point, the other samurai were ready to just jump in and finish him off when the leader, Katsumoto, who was not revealed yet, Dom, (laughs) says, stop. He stops them right then in their track. And he says, no, don't kill him. Bring him back with us. As Tom Cruise is coming in and out of consciousness, he sees an elder Japanese soldier who used to be a samurai on his knees with no shirt on. And 
his head is removed in some sort of ceremony that Tom, that Nathan Algren deems as barbaric at the time. So he makes a note of that. Okay, he makes a note it's of that. Called in the reference notes for seppuku. Seppuku, yeah. Okay, so seppuku is ritual disembowelment, and it doesn't have to end with someone cutting off your head, but it's <laughs> it's the humane thing to do to cut yeah, off rather head. than suffering. Yeah, right. So, not that they were looking for an easy way out. It's just it's a sign of respect that you would cut his head off, so to speak. Yeah. Um, Nathan Algren is now being brought to this village where the samurai live. And he is astounded by the beauty of this place. Everything looks well-kept. And it's not at all what he, would ex- was he, what he was expecting. He was expecting something to look a little bit more run-down, suitable toward savages. He is now in a home... Uh, a very clean, well-kept home, although basic and minimalistic. And he's being cared for by a woman. And his first night there, he is suffering from alcohol withdrawals. And he's having very bad dreams, PTSD, visions, and these withdrawals. And she refuses, the woman who's caring for him refuses to give him alcohol. Yep. And instead lets him sweat it out. The following morning, he is summoned by a samurai, a very stone-faced looking samurai, who takes him to meet the leader of this clan. Once he meets this leader, we, the audience, are quite shocked because we meet a charismatic um, likable gentleman. Yeah. Nothing like the savage killer you were expecting to encounter someone ruthless, someone tyrannical. Not at all. The first thing he says to Nathan Algren, if memory serves, and it should because we saw that clip today, my ancestors built this place. That's the first thing he said to him. My ancestors built this place. And, you know, it brings me peace. He says, my name is Katsumoto. What is your name? And Tom Cruise doesn't answer him. He's still under the impression that this is some brutal um, relic of a savage yeah, that he go- wants nothing to do with. It goes to show you that in their culture as well, or at least in their execution of their battles, they're savage in the way that they fight, but they're honorable in the way that they interact. Like It's almost like they segment that part of it. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, that's, so that's what the audience is figuring out. That's what Tom Cruise's character refuses to believe at this point. Yeah. And the man asks again very gently. He says, am I not – he essentially says, am I not speaking English correctly? Yeah. And uh, he says, I, I would love to practice my English with you if you would honor me. Like yeah. He's speaking, even he's speaking to this captive, this man that was fighting against him. He's speaking to him in, in, in deference. Yeah, it's 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 incredible. It's like water under the bridge. Yeah, right. So he says, um, "Why didn't you kill me or something like that?" And Katsumoto says, "Well, I want to learn about my enemy." And Nathan Algren says, "Wow, I've seen what you do to your enemies." And Katsumoto kind of shoots him this this puzzled look. He says, "Like warriors in your country don't kill or." 
He says, yeah, we kill, but we don't cut the heads off men who are defeated and on their knees. And he goes, ah, he says, paraphrasing again, many of our customs must seem strange to you. He actually asked me to do that, and I was honored to oblige. Um, Many of your customs seem strange to me. For example, not introducing yourself, even though we're enemies, that's very rude. Yeah, Yeah, so he's joking and being sarcastic, which is the antithesis of what these guys described him as. Right. So Nathan Algren finally says, okay, fine, my name is Nathan Algren. And the man bows to him. He says, I am honored to meet you and starts to walk away. And Nathan Algren's like, whoa, wait a minute. Where are you going? I have questions. He says, no, no, no. You introduced yourself. I introduced myself. What a great conversation. Yeah. <laughs> Let's call it a day. Yeah. And Nathan Algren's having none of it. He says, no, you tell me right now, who's that woman taking care of me? And he says, well, that's, that's my sister. Right, you killed her husband in battle. Yeah, and he says, "What? I'm being cared for by a woman whose husband I just killed in battle." He he's floored by this. He cannot understand it for the life of him. Yeah. Um, so he actually quits drinking in his time here, and while he's here, he is mesmerized by this culture. It began with people that he was there to kill, or so they perceived or should have perceived, being so polite and treating him with such you know decorum. Yeah, he was stunned, and then he observed everything they did, the amount of focus and discipline that they used in their daily lives. Yeah, and, and in every facet, in every domain of their life, it was every not, facet, not just in war or in fighting, but it was everything. And he, you, that's where you, as a member of the audience, get the feeling that this is what he's been looking for to kind of bring him back from the brink of self-destruction that yeah. he was on. Yeah. This is the higher calling or the higher purpose that he needed. Yeah. He needed this level of peace, tranquility, accountability, focus, and discipline. The samurai didn't do things arbitrarily. Everything had a purpose. Yep. The way you treated people, there was a level of decorum that was expected from you. Yep. And he's beginning to see that this is these people are not savages at all. They're far more advanced than anything he's ever seen. Yeah. In their philosophy, in their ideology, in the way they treat each other, and the way they practice their daily lives. Yeah. So him and Katsumoto, um, they develop something of a friendship and Nathan Algren begins to revere Katsumoto as an incredible leader, uh, an incredible thinker yeah. and as just all in all the picture of integrity. Yeah. And they develop a friendship versus uh, like complete enemies at the beginning. So they were having a conversation in a courtyard, it was a clip that you and I had just watched, and Katsumoto was talking about the perfect bloom. And he says how rare it is to see the perfect bloom. He's referencing the flowers. Uh, and they spoke briefly, then Katsumoto handed him a bag 
of his own belongings, of Nathan Algren's own belongings. And he said, when I took these from you, you were my enemy. And he turned around and walked away, implying that he no longer sees him as an enemy, but yeah. as a friend. Yeah, at this point in, in the, the film, it's established that he, they, they're in a, a small mountainous sort of village. So uh, due to the seasonal change that's happening throughout the film, Basically, Tom Cruise is forced to stay there for weeks or doesn't really describe the time, but it's weeks or months on end. So he's basically forced to integrate to their culture, whether they're practicing for battle or he's interacting with different um, villagers. He, he's, he's fully ingrained. And that's what we're just alluding to now is, is the level of dialogue that they're having is much more friendly. And, and, and I think it's admiration on both sides from from uh, both characters because they're they're coming to accept the level of you know distinct cultures but they they have a kinship and the way that they've experienced their lives so one of the conversations that was very significant to the plot and the spirit of the movie was when katsumoto asked nathan algren about his nightmares and nathan algren said well all soldiers have nightmares and katsumoto said no only ones who regret the things they've done. And what I took to mean from that was that Katsumoto was basically implying if you live for yourself and you're a mercenary and you just follow directions and you're opportunistic, your life will, you will compile a multitude of regrets. Yeah. But if you serve a higher purpose, a higher system of beliefs, something that you must adhere to, something that you can call unequivocally is uh, integrity, then you won't have these regrets at night. Yeah, if you're like anchored in principle. If you're anchored in principle, if you have discipline. Yeah. So at this point, Nathan Algren is a changed man. And he is released. They... The Nikatsumotos advises him that a safe passage would be granted them to enter the city to which Katsumoto would have to stand before a tribunal and give an account of his reasoning for his rebellion. Yeah, re rebellion. Rebellion in quotes, yeah. yes. And he's going to answer before a council on the emperor of Japan himself. Nathan Algren is released. He's no longer a prisoner. He's just released. He comes into contact with his um, superior officer again, played by, I think, Billy Goldwyn is his name. Anyway, again, it doesn't matter. And he, his superior officer says something to the effect of, wow, I can't imagine what you had to endure over there living with those savages. Yeah. Nathan Algren doesn't even dignify this with a response. But within his belongings, the superior officer sees some calligraphy, Japanese calligraphy. Um, and he says, what is it about your own people that you seem to hate so much? Again, Nathan Algren doesn't even dignify this with a response. Yeah. He just gently takes back the paper. And you can see him quietly reflecting on the lessons he had learned, and he's coming to question everything he believed. Is this modern world that he's a part of, that he, you know, this world, the only world he's known, is this really the answer? Or is it the discipline, 
the honor and the simplicity that he was just living amongst. Yeah. So Katsumoto stands before the tribunal. And one of the industrialists, the main industrialist who acts as an antagonist in this film. Omura, I think his name was. Omura, that's right. right. He essentially accuses Katsumoto of disrupting the progress of Japan. Something that's a very common theme now. People that don't want to obey are considered troublemakers. People that are disrupting progress. And progress is kind of even a misnomer because what are you progressing implies a level of uh, uh, advancement. What what sort of progress? Exactly. Progress for whom? Yeah. So Katsumoto uh, wholeheartedly disagrees. Yeah. He says that Japan will inevitably lose its soul should they modernize and be part of the globalist machine. Should they go down this path, the Japanese will lose all the characteristics that are uniquely theirs. Yeah. Um, Amora basically accuses him of uh, treason at this point. And Katsumoto says, really? If the emperor tells me right now to lay down my weapons, then I will. And in a show of humility, he takes his weapons and offers them to the emperor while bowing his head. The emperor is so burdened with shame because I I think he believes Katsumoto's right. Yeah. But he does not want to stand up to his advisors telling him that Japan has to modernize. Yeah, like the political pressure. He is allowing pressure to compromise his ethics. Yeah. And what he believes to be right. Absolutely. So he refuses to outwardly command Katsumoto to give up his swords. Yeah. But he doesn't agree with him either. He, he instead chooses to be neutral. Katsumoto says, only for the emperor will I lay down my swords and no one else. So they take him into arrest. At which point, Katsumoto is resigned to just accept his fate, whatever it is. He is a little bit disheartened that the emperor would not come to the realization on his own that the soul of Japan was worth saving. Yeah. So Katsumoto's in a jail cell, only to be rescued by, you guessed it. Your boy. Our boy, Tom Cruise, one of the greatest actors who ever lived. And he's with his English friend. <laughs> the, the <laughs> biographer. The biographer that he's, he's much more chummy with now. And he instructs them, he instructs his biographer friend to tell the guards that he needs to see Katsumoto. And the English biographer says something in Japanese, and Nathan Algren looks at him with a look of disbelief, and the guards immediately part and let him pass. And then Nathan Algren says, are you out of your mind? You just told them I'm the president of the United States. (laughs) So um, Nathan Algren had assembled a team of um, samurai to basically extract Katsumoto from his cell. But Surprisingly, Katsumoto doesn't want to leave at first. And he said, why? Why leave? Uh, The way the samurai is no longer necessary. 
that's what Katsumoto says, to which Nathan Algren looks him right dead in the eye, this white American guy, and says, have you seen the world? What can be more necessary? And this really, really wakes him up. And he says, you know what? He's right. They escape. They make their way back to the village. Uh, there's a very sad death along the way. I don't want to get bogged down in that. Um, but they realize that the only option, the only options are compliance. You can lose your soul and go along with an agenda or rather an initiative that is completely diametrically opposed to everything you stand for. Yeah. Or you can die and die the sort of man that you can be proud of. Yeah, die a good, a good death. Die a good death. So they're ready now to embark on their final campaign against the Japanese army, who has significantly stepped up in organization, artillery, in, artillery, in uh, leadership, and... Now, it's not so clear that the samurai have the advantage. Um, Nathan Algren tells Katsumoto of the story of the 300 Spartans in the Battle of Thermopylae, how they stood down on a much, much larger force in the invading Persians. Right. And Katsumoto immediately takes to this story. And yeah. he says, yeah. He goes, that's exactly what we're doing here. So they fight, and the samurai are, even though they put up an incredible fight and they show how indomitable their spirit really is, they're just no match for this artillery and the superior manpower. So they're cut down, and Katsumoto, on his last, uh, in his last piece of dialogue with Tom Cruise, sorry, Nathan Algren, he says... So tell me, how did that end, the Battle of Thermopylae? What happened to the Greeks? Yeah. And Nathan Algren smiles and he said, dead to the last man. <laughs> Katsumoto laughs and he charges toward his death. Yeah. Um, Nathan Algren survives. He did get to take out his superior officer. He saw him on the battlefield and killed him. Um, we should also mention that the way Katsumoto dies is also very honorable, so it wasn't also done in vain. So if you recall, remember how he had the, uh, in the moments of his last, you know, in the film, his last parts of his life, um, they basically, I think they were, the Japanese army was given a sort of machine gun or, I don't even know if you would call it a machine. I suppose it is. It's like a manual machine yeah, it's, gun. It's when a you're, yeah, and you're rot you're rotating uh, the rounds as they're progressing through the chamber. So that was cutting edge technology. Yeah, cutting then. edge technology back then. And um, one of the the Japanese, I suppose, commanders, um, he actually against Omura, the industrialist's wishes to gun all of them down continuously. He basically has them all stop. So for whatever reason, these soldiers have some respect for Katsumoto and their ways and for him to go out in an honorable way, if you want to call it that. So you can kind of see like how, yeah, he, he died and majority, 99% of them died with the exception of Nathan Algren, but 
they retained their honor. Not only that, they seems like it rubbed off on. It definitely was inspirational, even yeah. for the the enemy forces to have observed that. They were so impressed, yeah, with their spirit and their commitment to their own integrity and character. So yes, his death definitely wasn't in vain, at all. And the movie ends with um, Nathan Algren face to face with the emperor. Yeah, and the emperor has finally come to the realization that perhaps um, he didn't make the right decision. Perhaps that uh, he let greed and progress blind him to what really mattered all along. And he asked Nathan Algren, will you tell me how he died? Yeah. Because he had a deep respect for Katsumoto, who I have neglected to mention was at one time the emperor's teacher. Yeah. Um, Nathan Algren said, how about I tell you how he lived? So that was a pretty pretty good scene. I yeah. really liked that scene. And at the end of the film, um, Nathan Algren actually returns back to the village, mm-hmm. and it's heavily implied that he begins a romantic relationship with the uh, with Katsumoto's sister, who is looking after him. Yep. Um, that that movie just resonated with me, and there's a lot of stuff that I I didn't talk about because I, I just I just wanted to really cover the spirit of the movie and how it's relevant today. Um, it's so impactful. It's so meaningful because I, I think there's a lot of parallels with today. Mm-hmm. So one of the parallels we can discuss was the thing that never goes away. Okay. Um, you know, the, the, the virus, the thing that never goes away, COVID. When COVID happened, um, not right away, but eventually there, there, there started to be that, a divide. Society saw two groups of people, people that were on board with quote-unquote progress, science, and mandated directives that came from positions of authority. And then there were people who either opposed all these things or they were hesitant to comply because they felt they didn't have enough data to make an informed decision. Yep. I never thought in my lifetime I would see so many people ostracized because they chose or they elected not to follow a directive in an unprecedented manner. Okay, you know you can argue that vaccines have always existed. Yeah, sure they have. Okay, fine. But we have a brand new pandemic and a lot of people were hesitant to accept the vaccine which i believe in personal sovereignty and yep. I, I know you do as well yeah the the name calling you know they, these people were anti-vaxxers they're anti-science we have our good friend Justin Trudeau who actually went as far as saying that they're guilty of misogyny and racism. I'm not sure how he made that connection, but okay. He's an intellect. He wouldn't understand. Yeah, clearly. Um, anyway, it's just how many people suddenly found themselves in a position where they had to make a choice. Do I go along with something that I don't necessarily agree with because I want to be part of 
the group of people that are seen as the progress makers. Yeah, the way forward. The way forward. That's a good way to put it. Or do I stand my ground and suffer the consequences? What troubles me is I found a lot of people chose to be part of the way forward, as you put it, but they didn't agree with it. They just didn't want the ramifications of being called uh, a bad name. They didn't want to have their privileges revoked, such as travel. I mean, some were actually threatened with loss of income. Lots, I think, were. Well, not a lot, but a good amount. A good amount. And uh, this has really, really felt relevant to me now. And this isn't really covered. We're not really talking about discipline at the moment, but it's just a parallel between the film and society. It's a direct parallel. It's a direct parallel because it's one thing if you wanted to take the vaccine and you did see it as the right move. I'm not referring to those people. I'm referring to the people that did not want to, but instead were pressured or they allowed themselves to be pressured and in doing so their character or lack thereof was revealed yeah so i found that parallel interesting specifically but there's there's many different things but let's stay on topic discipline is the subject and what we learned in this film was that katsumoto the samurai possessed a level of discipline that Nathan Algren, played by Tom Cruise, was immediately captivated by. Now, the discipline we're referring to is not just robotic, menial. It was very profound. It was spiritual discipline, intellectual discipline, um, essentially devotion to one's purpose. Now, Dom, what does discipline mean to you personally? Uh. Total commitment to either a goal or some future state or an objective or a practice of sorts. It doesn't even need to be something that's really a goal because you can enact it right away. But it's a, a total commitment to the execution of whatever that underlying approach is without pause or without reason to to there's a, a lack of um i don't say like you you're you're not going to quit you're you're going to be resolute in your approach and how you carry this out and you don't let um circumstances dictate external circumstances dictate your approach to said task or goal or objective you know i don't know that's that's the way i kind of see it and you can really kind of map that out onto any part or aspect of your life um and i guess it's the ability to maintain that approach consistently over time that's what i would say okay which is a a very good definition my definition of discipline is the uncompromising pursuit of anything you deem to be more important than your personal wants and desires. Uncompromising is the key word there. Because let's say you're overweight 
and it is your goal to lose weight. Not for vanity, or hell, even for vanity. It's uh, Each person's reasons are their own. And you want to lose weight, so you know that you have to make some changes in your life. That's going to be difficult. The temptation is going to be, at times, overwhelming. But no matter what, you're vigilant, you're aware of yourself, you hold yourself accountable, and you stick to this goal. So to me, discipline is when you put an ideal above all your own desires. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And discipline begins with focus. It begins with awareness. Okay, so to be disciplined, you have to be self-aware. You have to be aware of your thoughts, your moods, your feelings. And you also need to hold yourself accountable. Yep. If you're constantly blaming external factors, you can never, ever, ever be disciplined. You're going to have this nihilistic attitude of always wanting, always craving, and never being satisfied. And that is what Nathan Algren saw in these people, that they were perfectly content. I mean, they were content. They had such tranquility in their character, in their mannerisms, in the way they lived. They appreciated beauty in everything. And this was a person, these were people, rather, that were at peace. And that is true discipline. So who is one of the most popular self-help gurus in the game today who specializes in the field of discipline? Self-help guru? I don't know. The first guy I thought it was Tony, Ro- Tony Robbins, but I don't know if that's... No. You talking about like a dis- purely on discipline? Purely only? on discipline only. Jocko Willink? Jocko Willink. Okay, so Jocko Willink I, is a very... Not a, not a guru, though. Well, yeah. whatever. He's got he's a just following. Got the experience. Yeah, okay, yeah, that's true. He's got a following. Yeah. Um, Jocko is all about discipline. Have you ever read any of his books? Yeah. Okay, I've read, I think, most of his books. I don't think I read his last one, but I, I will. I intend to. So Jocko is all about discipline. What I like about Jocko's style of, of teaching discipline is that it's very no-nonsense. He, he cuts away all the fluff. Yeah. Have you ever seen his Twitter Q&As? No. Okay, so he he will, like, he's very good at engaging with his base. I know that because he's he's engaged with me a multitude of times. And especially if you have a good question, even if it takes him a few days, he gets back to you. So I, I, I appreciate that. He, he seems to walk the walk. So um, former decorated Navy SEAL, guy's a war hero. He knows a thing or two about discipline and accountability. So he cuts through all the fluff. So during the Twitter Q&As, people will ask him, hey, I have to wake up early and study for a test. Any tips? And he'll respond simply, um, yeah, wake up early and study for your test. Just do it. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) The the old Mike saying, just do it. And really, that's, that's it in a nutshell. Like, discipline is not black magic. You know, you don't have to perform a series of rituals in order to obtain it. Yeah. Okay. It's yeah. it's really what do you want to do? Okay, great, do it. So that's his style of teaching discipline. Yeah. And he gives some 
um, lessons from his own personal experience. He's also big on self-accountability. He is always asking you to ask yourself, what can you have done better in every situation? Yeah. So again, you're adhering to ideals that are greater than yourself. What do most people do when they fail? Blame Blame other people. They blame external factors. Sometimes it's other people. Sometimes it's the weather. Sometimes it's bad luck. Yeah. He's asking you to see what you could have done better. Okay. The Stoics call it uh, the sphere of influence. Um, So you do a reality check of what it is that's actually in your power to control. Yeah. And you focus on that exclusively. Yep. Nothing else. Okay. So that's the style of discipline he teaches, which I resonate with. I don't agree with everything he says. Just to be clear, I don't. And it would be weird if you agreed with 100% of what anyone said all the time. Yeah. Um, like, for example, he's got this obsession with sleep deprivation that I, <laughs> you know, I, whatever. I, I know he doesn't actually tell people to be sleep deprived. Um what he means by wake up early is don't hit snooze. That's what he means. We all know when we're being a little gluttonous when it comes to rest. Yeah. And he's saying you yourself know that. Yeah. So don't do it. Yeah. Um, the samurai were very disciplined people. I would say the samurai were the most disciplined warrior culture, even ahead of the Spartans. And I'll tell you why. Because the Spartans were very single-minded in what they did. The Japanese samurai had to get good at things that weren't necessarily immediately directly correlated to their main profession, which was warrior. Yeah. So that to me shows that you can adhere to discipline even when it's not immediately relevant to you. Right. So for that, I hold them in the highest esteem. And I think you can even say with respect to the Japanese culture overall, if you had to look at the trickle, obviously, because this movie is a, is a reflection of what factually happened, not this particular plot of the movie, but in reality, this was a culture that was embedded and ingrained in this sort of uh, samurai influence. So if you really take stock and in inventory of all the cultures and societies in the world, there's really like nothing that comes close to to Japanese culture and discipline. I suppose you could say that the way that the United States was founded and in um, the, the, the Declaration of Independence and in the Constitution and the legal system and so on and so forth, one could surmise that they respected those values, but it was never to the same degree that, you know, Japan had. So, yeah, so the, the Americans, um, with respect to their ethos, and I, you can't even say this of all Americans at the time, but was definitely with whatever rebelliousness was established in you know the late 1700s and then was embodied in a few you know in future documentation and legal framework and whatnot I would say that they're uh, a proxy if you want to call it that of the Japanese culture but nothing they that had some they had some um, resemblance to them I think what they lacked however was the understanding yeah. So they they had an idea. The founding fathers of America had this idea that they were going to create the freest nation ever made or, or whatever. I'm not going to argue 
some people will say, no, that wasn't what it was. Listen, whatever. For the purpose of this discussion, that's what it was. They had this idea that they were going to create the freest nation ever. Okay? And they fought tooth and nail to bring this idea to fruition. And they were willing to sacrifice it all to bring this idea to fruition. I would argue that that indomitable spirit that they possessed was based on this idea. The samurai possessed it as something innate to their spirit. More ingrained. It's deeply ingrained. Yeah. It's at the core of who they are, meaning that they understood it deeply and could apply it at will. So that's what I wanted to talk about was the ideal becomes the highest order good. Right. Like it's, it becomes on your hierarchy, inferred or not, or yes. actualized or not. That is the top. Correct. Not that it, it replaces like a godlike interpretation depending on your culture. No, no, no. This is more micro. Micro, but in terms of a hierarchy, that's a, that becomes at the top. So in a way, uh, with respect to, and, and, and principles are kind of act like this, which are more or less, I mean, it's semantics, I suppose you could say, values, principles, whatever you want to call it, it doesn't really matter. But at the top of that is that discipline, uh, integrity, whatever you want to describe it, stoicism, all these characteristics and features and benefits, that becomes the structure, and then everything else is a derivative of that. Does that make sense? The way It does, it does. Uh, essentially, you don't have to wait for an ideal to basically radicalize you and make you motivated to live your life this way. You don't have to wait for that to happen. If that happens, great. As long as it's a good ideal and and the things you're doing to adhere to it are also good and productive. But you don't have to wait. You can apply discipline to everything in your life. That's the beauty of it. So while the founding fathers definitely had this ideal that they were prepared to sacrifice everything for. I don't know that they had the same profound understanding of discipline that the Japanese samurai did. No, and I think they were, the the samurai would have been, I would assume, would have been practicing it for centuries. And the founding fathers, like, like it's, they kind of, not that they came across it, but they executed a vision at a particular point in time that resembled qualities of that subculture of Japan. Yeah, any, anything can turn you into a fanatic, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Right? And um, if it's a good thing that's making you obsessed and your commitment to this thing is, is, is paying off in dividends, you're seeing results, then that's great. Yeah. But I would recommend that people do some introspective soul-searching and they come to understand this philosophy at its core. They come to understand how they have more say over their personal lives than they think they do. What would you say to somebody who has like a level of reluctance to embark on that sort of journey? I would ask them why. That would be my first question. Why are you reluctant to take more control over your life? What if they say they don't know how? They don't know how? It's unbelievably simple. It's not easy. 
it's probably the hardest thing in your life you're ever going to do, but it's simple. Mm. Conceptually, it's simple. Which is? Okay, so you want to be better at your job. Right. Okay. What would make you better at your job? Working longer hours, maybe. Yeah, depending. Being where you should be when you should be there. Being where you should be. What's preventing you from doing this? Fear. Fear? Laziness. Oh, I'm just saying. Probably laziness. Yeah. Okay. You'd rather, let's say you have a job where you can work from home. Or even, you know, fear of the commitment maybe too. Fear of what that would entail. Okay. So look at it in manageable chunks. Mm -hmm. Don't look at the big picture and become overwhelmed. Look at it in manageable chunks. So let's say you have a job where you're able to work from home. You have a certain level of autonomy Mm. where no one is constantly policing you. Right. You know when you're being productive, when you're not being productive. When you're not being productive, why aren't you being productive? What's the reason? So would you say that... But hold on, what's the reason? Why why would you not... Why are you not being productive? As an individual, you're not putting the effort. (coughs) Oh, excuse me. Are you choosing rest or an excessive amount of rest over your obligations? Yes. Okay. Are you choosing your own pleasure and entertainment over your obligations? Yep. Okay. Then ask yourself this. Can you live with the result? Because you're not going to get a good result here. If you have a goal in mind, and that's where I think this begins, you have to have a goal. Yeah. So discipline begins with focus, as I said. I'm not sure where I read that, but it resonated with me, and I believe it to be the 100% accurate truth. So you have to have a goal. Let's simplify it. Let's say your goal is to get in shape. You have very little time to exercise. You have to actually create some time. So maybe that involves setting your alarm clock earlier, as Jocko suggests you do, if your life is as busy as you say you are. By the way, most people, if they actually took an inventory of how they spend their time, they would realize they're nowhere near as busy as they say they are. Yeah. Okay? Yeah, it's a bunch of bullshit. Usually. Yeah. So you carve out an hour from the hours of 6 a.m. to 7 a.m. This is when you're going to exercise. You're going to get blood pumping. You're going to get your heart beating. This is the hour you're going to do it. 6 a.m. rolls around. Your bed is comfortable. So comfortable. You don't want to leave it. Do you adhere to discipline that says, no, I made a commitment. I have a goal. I have a responsibility. I have to do this. Or do you say, meh, and go back to bed? If you say, meh, and go back to bed, then just accept the fact that you will never achieve your goal. Because you don't have the metal to achieve your goal. You choose comfort over what you really want. Discipline is giving up what you want right now to have what you want most. In the future. Your future self, in a way. In a way. But you're making a sacrifice to get what you really want. Yeah. Not what you'll settle for at this exact moment, but what you really want. Would you say that you have to go through that kind of deductive introspection? Like you kind of reverse engineer. Like I'm seeing somebody starting this from scratch and they happen to be listening to this. Is that the, you think that's the best way to say like, like if I want to get in shape, 
if you quantify that and say, I want to lose 10 pounds, okay, what's the best method of losing 10 pounds? And then you're saying subdividing that into a bunch of accomplishable steps and then it's sticking to those steps daily. Yeah. The reason why you need to be introspective about this is because you need to know your own mind. You need to be realistic in assessing what kind of a person you are. Yeah. And habits are very powerful. So if you get into the habit of foregoing your immediate pleasure in order to pursue a goal, that will become automated in you. It will start to become easy to do that. I have lived in gyms for the vast majority of my life. To me, going to the gym is the easiest non-decision I have to make. Mm -hmm. Unless I'm injured or ill, I go. You you still go anyways. (laughs) Well, (laughs) yeah, but it's okay. Don't do that. (laughs) But yeah, it's just easy. Yeah, yeah. Because when I was a kid, and you know you have, when you're a kid, I like to describe kids as having uh, an ocean worth of energy inside of this tiny little body. Yeah. To focus is very difficult. Yeah. To bring a kid to focus is very, very difficult. But I asked myself the question. So my first sport that I committed to was boxing, that, that I really committed to. I asked myself how bad I wanted to be good at boxing. And the answer was I wanted to be really good at boxing, very much. So I said, you're not going to get good at boxing by hanging out with your friends. You're not going to get good at boxing by um, watching television. You're going to get good at boxing by boxing. So I made a commitment to train six days a week. I was young back then. That was nothing, right? I, I mean, when you want to do other things in the beginning, of course, it's there's a bit of an internal war, tug of war. But eventually it just became automatic. And friends would invite you to do all these fun things, and you'd be like, okay, sure, but after I'm done, what I have to do? It just became automated. So just realize that every morning, if you set your alarm clock an hour early, if you hit snooze, you're creating a bad habit. You're telling yourself consciously and subconsciously that it is okay to surrender. Yeah. Surrender is becoming your default. If you say, no, no, this is not okay. I'm not choosing comfort over Where does that goal come from? Like, do you think there has to be some level of um, the, the rigidity of that response? Do you think it has to be, like, do you, do you have to anchor that in some sort of philosophy or ideology that you're dedicated to something and you have a certain philosophical approach to your life and you will not take no, like you won't take giving up for an answer. Like, or like, I know you're saying individually in that decision, it's just saying no, but do you think you have to then kind of map that onto the rest of your life as well? Like not only in that decision to wake up, but also in other parts of your life as well. It has a trickle down effect. Just like bad decisions have a trickle down effect, sort of good decisions. Right. So if you make a hard decision in something as small as waking up early, do you make your bed in the morning? Yeah. Why? I'm just organized like that. I don't know. Okay. So you're disciplined. Yeah. You're not organized. uh, You're disciplined. Yeah. Okay. I've met people that don't make their bed. They say, what for? No one's coming over. Yeah. Tonight I'm just going to get you back into the bed. What's the difference? Because I fucking hate seeing it messy. Okay. I want to see it clean because I guess none of that becomes me disciplined to the, the orderliness of it. So you're adhering to... 
an ideal that your life should have order. Correct. Okay. So that's what it boils down to. Now, when you go to work, you work in an office. Mm -hmm. Do you leave your office in disarray? No. No. Your office is organized as well. Correct. Okay. How do you feel mentally when you're organized as opposed to disorganized? Uh, There's a level of clarity. There's a level of clarity. Subconsciously, you feel. Okay. So there's a trickle-down effect. Focused. Focused. So Jocko says, Jocko Willing says discipline equals freedom. He says that hard decisions liberate you from this feeling, I'm adding this, but I I interpret it as this feeling of helplessness Mm -hmm. in which you have no control over your day-to-day life. Yeah. He's saying by making these decisions, you add that freedom. Yeah. So what you're adhering to that's bigger than yourself is this idea that you are a responsible human being who makes his decisions consciously. consciously. You are not reactionary. You are deliberate. Yeah. You're focused. You're methodical. And you'll realize that when you're doing this as a product of your will, you can apply this to everything you do. Mm-hmm. You can be the best version of yourself in every scenario and everything you set out to accomplish. Yeah. I have another habit that people can't understand. You know, you know I like to read. Many times I'll pick up a book that I th- thought was going to be good and it's not good at all. And sometimes I'll lament how bad the book I'm reading is, to which everyone says, well, why don't you just stop reading it? So, okay. My answer is this. I don't want to f- build a habit where I don't finish what I start. And by the way, many times I picked up a book, the first couple of chapters were painful, but then it got really good. And I would have missed out. If, if I had built that habit where it's like, ah, this is boring, next. I would have missed out. You, so, you're like you're kind of, you don't want to microwave the experience of whatever you're doing. I don't want to build a bad habit of quitting. Yeah. Because quitting is a habit. Well, don't you feel like that's kind of like a microcosm, but in the inverse of the way thing is, the way things are, like more so for men, but just in general in society right now where we kind of, we kind of have this as as the setting of our culture right now where a lot of, individuals but men especially will do the opposite of what you just said well they they want the shortcut they want the quick path and they they don't see any value or they don't see any because part of the the story of nathan algren is also he has this like redemptive story arc where he he has the discipline from the war experience but he was disheveled and you know worn down when you see him at the beginning of the movie, but by the end of the movie, he's kind of redeemed himself by going through that process. You know what I'm trying to say? So it's it's not to say that somebody with a negative experience or with bad circumstances now can't change their current framework or approach and then get better in the future. You know what I'm trying to say? The problem with shortcuts is most people assume it's the prize you're chasing that has the most value, yeah. but, but it isn't. Yeah, It's what you gained 
on your journey to that prize that is most valuable. Okay? I do jujitsu. You do not. If I had said to you in a very hypothetical situation, a completely made up situation, you're a friend of mine. How's about I just promote you through all the ranks? Is it the black belt, do you think, that has value? Or is it all the skills and hard work and lessons and abilities and attrition the that latter. you've been able to yeah. accomplish? What, what has value? So if I were to give you a black belt, but you are in no way, shape, or form an actual black belt, not physically, not mentally, Skill-wise. you don't have the skills, did I really do you a favor? No. But well, I guess people are more invested in the f- the first option because the favor they see is getting the black belt as the the and what good is this black belt going to do you when you can't even demonstrate a white belt's understanding what what good is this going to do you it's the same thing with if if I took a kid who had no training in the business world who had no idea what sacrifice meant and I gave him a billion dollars most kids would burn it yeah. All it, that that's an obscene amount of money, but they would, yeah, because this is a kid who's been living for his own amusement. So, what's he going to do with, with a surplus of wealth? Yeah, he's going to amuse himself. I mean, he might even die <laughs> just based on um, the, 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 the stimulation he can afford now. Yeah, I, I think people don't want to use. The black belt and to go back to your first analogy so i think there's some sort of framework there where people want the appearance of the black belt they like the optics of the black belt and people's understanding of them having the black belt in quotes like they don't really obviously have the skills to go along with it but the appearance is good enough and i think that's kind of a, a metaphor for me saying that men uh, primarily, but just everybody in general in society is kind of focused on the race to get the black belt, but not the process of actually earning the black belt. Yeah, well, that's bullshit, and deep down inside they know it's bullshit, okay, because you know that you just stole valor. Let's say you're successful in in finding your shortcut. Yeah. You know you stole valor, that your, your achievement is marred. That it means nothing. And you're going to hate yourself for living a lie. Because that's, I'm not a psychologist, but I can tell you that people who live lies, they tend to resent themselves. Just like people who pretend to be wealthy but are not. Uh, they, you know, they succumb to the stress of having to keep up this facade. Why do you think people... It's better to do it the real way. And you will be at peace. So what, what did Nathan Algren find immediately in the samurai that they were at peace yeah something he didn't know he envied that about them because although he was a man of character he he definitely was a man of character he was also a man of vice he thought it was acceptable to drown his demons with alcohol as opposed to confront them to learn from his errors and to basically make amends with his mistakes Okay, so in a way, he was both disciplined and undisciplined, which is why he was so um, mesmerized with these people. 
because they were warriors like he was. Here he was, a nihilistic mess. And these people were completely at peace with themselves. Yeah. Adhering to this idea of personal accountability, discipline, and dedication to everything they pursue. So shortcuts are bullshit. Unless we're talking about having developed skills where you make things look easy. But again, you paid a price to make it look easy. Uh, you know the story about Picasso? I believe it's Picasso. No. Someone went up to him and said, would you, would you draw me something? And he drew something on a napkin. It was beautiful. And then he says, here, you can have this. I'm making this up for $100,000. And the guy said, what the hell are you talking about? It took you three seconds to do that. And he says, no, it took me a lifetime to do that. Right? So if we're talking about, that's not a shortcut. You paid the price to be that good at something. Right? There is no shortcuts. There are no shortcuts. If you want to be good at anything, you have to pay the price. If you want to be successful, you have to pay the price. And I don't mean successful just in, in a strictly financial sense. If you want to be a successful human being, if you want to be someone who can look in the mirror and be proud of himself or herself, then you have to pay the price. You have to make the right decision. The decisions you know are right. You have to adhere to that. That's what honor is. I was, I was going to ask before, why do you think people have a hard time acknowledging that like inner katsumoto of that rebelliousness that's not maybe trying to break out, but they have some semblance of it there, but they just don't act on it. Or when they see others acting on it, they have they frown upon it to go back to you know you, to use, use the covid as a just an example but what 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 makes you think like why is there this kind of degeneration and degradation to 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 where we are now collectively and why is there this level of reluctance to basically encapsulate what you're saying because as i said before everything is a uh, is really a product of your habits and I believe people in the West have had it too good for too long. And as a result, they have made comfort-seeking their primary habit, pleasure-seeking their primary habit. Like the, if that became the highest order good in a way. It, it's, it's what occupied the majority of their thoughts. Right. So you become your thoughts. Yeah. Okay? If you think good thoughts, you become good. You think bad thoughts, you become bad. Right. They, you become, in essence, what you think and what you do. Right. So when life is hard, you have to make hard choices. You have to forego pleasure. You have to forego comfort. And you have to do what's necessary. From this comes character. From character comes success. From success comes comfort. From comfort comes vice. Right, there's 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 actually a saying way better than what I just said that hard encapsulates times. that that hard time saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can Google that. I'm not gonna yeah, yeah. bother. But whatever. It we're in that stage right now where we're basically as a society, as a people in the West, we are suffering for decades of decadence. It's way too much pleasure seeking. Right. Okay. 
did your grandfather have time to indulge in the things you're seeing people indulge in today? No. Uh, but I, if I can add before you can, I don't know if you wanted to continue on to another point, but if I can just go on like a quick tangent, I think if you take the samurai approach mentally or just a stoic approach mentally, if you had the position and somehow you could inherit that experience and you could choose between like full on depravity of like, let's just say you're it's full on hedonistic desirable approach to life. You had some sort of like a middle ground and then you had basically poverty. I think most people would have a tendency to choose the first option, but I think if you were to actually take a stoic approach, if you want to call it stoic or whatever, whatever you want to call it, just because you can have the decadence, you may not desire the decadence because you know what it can cause down the line. You know what I'm trying to say? So even, even if my grandfather's an example, maybe him, the decadence, the pleasure that he could not seek relative to what we have now, maybe that was having just a bottle of wine. And that was his <coughs> form of decadence, and that was good enough. So that is why generationally they embodied more discipline. Yeah. That's why I'm encouraging people to do the introspection and discover what discipline means so that they can apply it in any time. Yeah. You may have a good life. That doesn't mean you have to forego discipline. Yeah. yeah, yeah. doesn't mean you should. Okay. Generationally, they didn't have the luxury of foregoing discipline. And that's why, you know, you hear the old saying, oh, back then men were men. Well, why were men men? Last I checked, they were still flesh and blood, just like they are now. What was the, the distinguishing factor? The fact that they developed character by... Hardship. Hardship. You can choose hardship now. Most people won't, but they could. And from the selection of that hardship, you will develop character. From that character, a lot of good behaviors will become automated automatic you will become a more productive person you will become a better husband a better father a better wife a better mother a better employee a better individual you're just going to become better because you have built these habits another good habit to build in keeping them in, in you know in the, within the spirit of introspection is to make your decisions deliberately that's that's a very stoic philosophy. Yeah. They call it the reasoned choice. Okay, so that is most people react. All right, something happens, they react to it. Stoic philosophy dictates that you should when when possible. Obviously, you you know, someone attacks you, you, you it's fight or flight. Yeah. You don't have time to think about it, but when possible that you Make it a habit to choose deliberately how you're going to respond to each external stimulant or situation. Okay, so that's another good habit. And that will also lead to discipline. Because rather than following your impulses, you're going to make a choice and then follow that choice. Right. You can choose that. You don't need for economic hardship to occur before that happens, before it's thrust upon you. And by the way, if things do go to hell, who do you think is going to be more prepared? The individual who is used to making the hard calls, who's used to making sacrifice, 
or the one who's going to be totally overwhelmed because every impulse they've ever had, they've immediately tried to satisfy. Look at these people that are addicted to pornography. Mm. Is that a good way to live? No. Well, well, they will say, oh, why? Why not? It's so easy, you know? Well, well, okay. So rather than to seek a connection with an actual person, you choose to stay at home as an introvert. Yeah. Watching depraved things yeah. on your phone. Yeah. You, do you really think that that's going to make you a better person? No. Of course not. Of course not. Rather than playing a sport where you learn about winning, losing, sacrifice, hard work, teamwork, focus, perseverance, people stay home and play video games. The amount of time people spend playing video games, what do they get out of it? Uh, like a pseudo-problem-solving, pseudo-interaction, a fake reality. Fake reality. Yeah. Okay. I like to watch TV. Do you like to watch TV? Yeah. Okay. Do you know people that can sit there and watch TV all day and all night? Do, do I know a few? Yeah. yeah, I do. Yeah. Okay. Is that going to prepare you for anything? Uh, not unless you're a fucking movie critic. <laughs> Even then, maybe not. Okay. So yeah. no. that's valuable time that you could have spent honing a skill. Absolutely. Learning a skill. Broadening your horizons, sharpening your mind, deepening relationships, creating relationships, interacting. People are very accustomed nowadays to making the easy choice because the easy choice is so readily available. I have bad news. It won't be forever. Do you also think... Weak men create bad times. It won't be forever. Yeah. And do you also think that there's a level of overcomplexity that's created artificially to allow for these, we'll use men in this example, but that allows for men to just say, oh, wow, no, that task is too, it's too big for me to tackle or it's, it's too complex or it doesn't make any sense. Instead of taking like the personal accountability, the personal responsibility um, and becoming as disciplined as possible, not obviously overnight, but steadily over time, step by step. Do you think that that also is a problem now where if you take like Jordan Peterson as an example and he's using you know, all his, you know, memes of him, he says, just clean your room. Like it, it really is that. I know it's stupid in the way that people talk about it, but I think that it's, it's, it's a simplified version of just saying, just start with what you can control in your locality and then work your way outwards from there. Discipline is the embodiment of simplicity. Of simplicity. Yeah, it really is. This, if you combine these two philosophies, which is number one, your sphere of influence, you have to um, introspectively understand what's yours to control and what is not. What you don't control, you immediately do without in your conscience. Okay, just get it out of your head. What is yours to control? You dedicate yourself to the excellence of controlling it. That becomes a habit. And then you will develop character. And then you too will be at peace with yourself. It's, it's really that simple. Mm-hmm. It's just not easy. Because stimulation or the, the temptation of stimulation is always going to be calling you. The temptation of laziness is always going to appeal to you. Ah, why go to work and just stay home in my tracksuit? 
But what's worse, so the pain of regret or the pain, the pain of the short-term discipline that you have to implement all the time? Uh, I think everyone will tell you on their deathbed. I think most people will tell you on their deathbed that um, they regret not doing more. Yeah. You know, I, I, I can't imagine someone on their deathbed saying, man, I really wish I would have spent more time at home alone in my pajamas watching Netflix. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's not fair. Life is so short. I could have watched four more series. Yeah. On Netflix. Yeah. You know, or whatever. Man, I wish I could have played more video games. Like, I, I just can't see people saying that. Yeah. What do you think is a kind of good way to wrap it up in, in terms of, like, what's a, a concrete action plan that guys can take and take a critical to tie it in with, like, the theme of our podcast? Set a goal. Set a goal. It's just as easy as that? Set a goal? Yeah, set a goal and stick to it. Set a, set a goal come up with um, steps on how you're going to achieve that goal and then stick to it. And listen, uh, I mean, if you have a loved one in the hospital, obviously you can deviate from your plan. But I find most people who deviate from their efforts, it's not for any actual reason other than I just didn't feel like it. Right. Right. So don't make I didn't feel like it your default. Right. You know, make dedication your default. And I think it will enrich your life. And not just me. A lot of people have uh, attributed their equilibrium to living a disciplined life. Yeah. Is there anything else you want to add overall about the movie or just in general about discipline and how we can kind of like carry this over into our next kind of discussions or... No, I'm uh, glad we did this podcast. This is is a subject that we both... um, always wanted to discuss i'm glad we got to do it and uh it was a, i enjoyed breaking down the last samurai one of my favorite movies and um yeah if, if you haven't seen it too bad because we pretty much spoiled the whole movie for you but uh <laughs> if, if if you have i hope uh hope you found value in our insights and um that's it thanks for listening and we apologize for the hiatus and we will try to be disciplined in our approach to having more yeah. podcasts. How ironic. Yeah. All right.